The sermon text this morning is Romans 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, we heard last week that um, Paul introduces himself in this beginning of the letter, that he's a servant, that he's an apostle, that he's set apart for the gospel of God. He um, tells us his goal, his life goal, his life ambition is to bring uh, the nations to obedience to faith. He wants people to come to know uh, the greatness of God, and he's doing it all for the glory of Christ. He is, he is doing it for his glory. Paul loves the church. He, he knows that the church is the means through which the gospel goes to the world. He's planted the church all over Asia Minor. He's completed two missionary journeys at this point. He's beginning his third journey. He he loves the church, and, and in this passage today, we kind of see his love for the church in the way that he prays for them, in the way that he longs for them, and in the way that he intends to preach the gospel. He really gives us, in this passage, kind of a model as to how we can love the church. How can we love one another? How, you know, his heart is for the church. Our heart is to be for the church. And he gives us a beautiful model how. So I, I want to just break up this passage in three parts. First, that he loves the church by praying for them. We're going to see this in verses 8 through 10. And then in 11 to 13, he's going to long for the church, this deep desire for the church to be built up and strengthened. And then he's going to want to preach to the church. This is a means of grace for us. And we'll see that in 14 uh, through 17. So look with me at how he prays for the church. He, he begins very simply. He's just giving thanks to God for them. Notice in verse 8 he says, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I mean, Paul is beginning his letter with a prayer of thanksgiving. This is not unusual. In Greek literature, they would often have this prayer of thanksgiving that would often initiate the letter. But Paul's not mimicking culture here. He wants them to know his passion for the church. Now, it is kind of ironic that he's thanking God for their faith. He's thanking God for them. I mean, you would, you would think, I mean, do you do that? Do you tend to thank God for people that perhaps you haven't even met? I mean, but it does kind of make sense because if, if they have been saved through faith, we know, that, we know that salvation comes by faith, and we know that faith is a gift, 
And so we should thank the giver of the gift. We should thank the source of the gift. Now, listen, if these Roman Christians had come to faith because they're really sharp, intelligent people, if they had discerned the way and the path of salvation because they're just, they kind of worked it all out on their own, then we should thank them. We should thank them for their great efforts at learning the faith. But it obviously seems that Paul doesn't see that they have saved themselves. But that God has moved with mercy to them. And so he's thanking God. Because if God's the author of salvation, and he's the finisher, if he began the good work, and if he's going to complete the work, then he should receive the thanks. And that kind of just causes us to pause for a minute. You know, it helps us see even here in this doctrine of election that God's mercy is meted out in saving us. I mean, the gratefulness that we have is that God has saved us. Now, Paul is thanking God for their faith, but we can thank God for the faith that you and I have. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do you believe so ardently in Christ when others who have heard the same thing don't believe? I don't think anybody would stand up here and just say, well, it was me. I I made the final call. I I investigated that extra step, and so, yeah, I'm I'm part of it. Nobody would say that. So we ought to thank him. We're grateful people. The church is to be known by a gratitude to God for him saving us. And I think that's what Paul's doing. He's thanking God for their faith, but he's doing more than that. He's thanking God for their faith that's growing such that the whole world knows it. Now, this is probably a bit of a hyperbole. I don't think people in China knew of their faith. You know, the church was in, the, in Rome, and Rome was the center of the Roman Empire. And so thanking God and saying that their faith had spread throughout the world, probably throughout the Roman Empire is probably what Paul meant. He's thanking God that their faith had taken root, and it was known everywhere. Now, it's interesting, uh, their faith was known throughout the kingdom. How so? Well, you know, faith, I want to remind you, is not ethereal. It's not abstract. Faith is very visible. It's very practical. It's very demonstrable. In other words, faith would be like the wind, if you will. You know how the wind, you see the wind by its effect. You see trees bending. You see leaves blowing. Well, it's the same thing with faith. When faith is in the soul of a person, you see the effect of faith in their life. It's very outward. I mean, the drunk, he gets sober. I mean, the the liar, he tells the truth. The lazy or the thief, he begins to work. You see the effect. And so these Roman Christians, uh, they were known by their faith. In other words, you know, they were caring for the weak. They were caring for the missionary. Uh, They were looking to... Uh, to be faithful under the persecution that they had living right in Rome. Uh, they, were, they were strengthening the saints. They were acting with practical aids. So y- you have this visibility of faith through the way their lives were changing. So Paul's very thankful for that. He, he gives great thanks for their faith. But notice he does more. He also, he also prays to God for their benefit. Notice in verse 9, he begins to explain. He doesn't really pray for them. He only records what he prays for them. And he says, God's my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. So Paul is saying to them, I'm thanking God for your faith, but I'm also appealing to God 
for your faith. I'm also appealing to God. I mean, it's interesting, the earnestness that, that Paul wants us to know. He wants them to know, I pray always for you unceasingly. He's redundant for a purpose. And, and you know what he does? He calls God as his witness. He says, I want to call God to give testimony to I really do do this for you. Out of all the things he prays, the only thing he tells them is I want to visit you. But notice how gentle Paul is. He's saying this. He's saying, I'm asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least at last succeed in coming to you. He's not, he's not putting his will on God. He's not saying it's God's will that I come to you. He's very gentle. He's very submissive to God. You, you, you don't see him presuming to know God's will. Now, some of us think when we pray like that, that's kind of an evidence of faithlessness. We're not sure. We're not trusting in God. Not so. Paul just doesn't want to sin the sin of presumption. He doesn't want to think that he knows exactly what God's plan is. And so he submits himself to God, which is really a good lesson for us. So we see Paul loving the church through prayer. He is praying by giving thanks to God for their faith. We see Paul loving the church by appealing to God for their faith. So this is a way that you and I can love the church. We love the church by praying for the church. How often do you express your gratitude to God for the faith of the saints here? If, if I were to measure your love by the degree that you pray and give thanks to God for one another, what would that say of your love? This is a way to love the church is by praying, by thanking God. God, thank you. We try to model that here. You know, you see when Nathaniel was praying, he, he prayed for y'all. He, he wanted God to do a great work among us. Uh, we pray for the church around the world. We thank God for them, their faithfulness, their perseverance. We pray for their continued growth at, at 730. So we have families join us each week at 8 a.m. Uh, before the service to pray, probably two or three families a week. And we have the families gathered in there. Rick leads it. We have the families gathered in there praying for you. Uh, we meet actually at 7.30, the staff and Rick and oftentimes elders, just praying for you. We want God. To, so, so this is what we're trying to model. I, I've known many of you have actually just prayed through the church directory. You know, we have that phone app now, which makes it absolutely easy just to pull up every, you know, every day you pray for a letter. You know, what members are under A or B or C. I would encourage that that would be a way of loving the church is by praying for the church on a regular basis. Just asking God for grace, giving thanks for the church. Now, why don't we do this? Why don't we, it seems so simple and really obvious. Why don't we do it? Well, I think there's a number of detractors from us doing it. You know, one can be uh, that we're kind of protected. We're, we're kind of, uh, um, I don't know, we see people in the church and we see that they're very gifted or God's grace is very present in their life. And we're actually a little envious or maybe intimidated by that. Maybe we're resentful. And we have trouble praying for them because God may use them even more. And we, we feel like we're even less used. Someone maybe is highly gifted. And do we thank God for them? Or, or do we just ignore it? Or are we envious of it? Or, or do we just silently kind of just say, well, they're that way because whatever reason you can come up with. 
But you know, do, do we realize that God has so equipped the church with different gifts and different people and different graces for the benefit of the church? That if you do that really well, I need you to do that because I don't do that as well as you do. And so instead of it being a point of intimidation, it should be a point of rejoicing. God, thank you for those people. They're very helpful to the body of Christ. So I think sometimes we don't pray just because we're maybe resentful or maybe envious. Uh, others, I think, maybe we don't pray because we're frustrated that God's not answering our prayers, that God is not responding in the way that we want him to. But I, I do want to point out to you that Paul admits that God did not answer his prayers. God was denying him. He talks about wanting to come but being prevented. I hope that somehow I might at last succeed in coming to you. You know, so Paul's prayers were thwarted. But you don't see him frustrated. You see him continue to pray. And you do know that he finally did make it to Rome. His prayer was answered in Acts 28. But he made it to Rome in chains as a prisoner. So he got his prayer answered. You know, as you get older, you begin to realize, you know, God really does answer our prayers on a different timetable and in a different way than we often think. And I hope that as we grow in the faith and grow older, we can be more disposed to the way he does it. And, and we can feel more comfortable in the way he does it. We can be more thankful in how he does it. Even though it's not in accordance with what we originally desire, we can trust that he'll do it rightly. You know, David Brainerd was a, a missionary to the American Indians um, uh, back in the time of Jonathan Edwards, 18th century, really the first American missionary to the, to the Indians, and died as a young man, but was very mature and, and older in the faith. But, but he prayed this prayer. He said, Thou art all in all, and all enjoyments are what to me thou makest them, and no more. I am well pleased with thy will, whatever it is, or should be in all respects. And if thou bidst me to decide for myself in any affair, I would choose to refer all to thee, for thou art infinitely wise and cannot do amiss, as I am in the danger of doing. I rejoice to think that all things are at thy disposal, and it delights me to leave them there. Then prayer turns wholly into praise, and all I can do is adore and bless thee. Bless thee. This doesn't mean we don't pray, but we just pray disposing ourselves to God. So, so the way to love the church is that we pray for one another, we give thanks Look at the membership list. Look at how God has gifted our church with various individuals. And thank God for their faith. They're serving you. They're loving you. So, so that's the first thing. Paul is just expressing his love for the church. But notice, secondly, in verse 11, that I think Paul loves the church through his longing for the church. Look in verse 11, he says this, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. This is Paul's heartbeat for the church. This is the way he's loving the church, is he wants to come in and impart a spiritual gift. Now, don't think for a minute that Paul thinks he's a spiritual Santa Claus, and he's going to come, and he's going to take off his bag of goodies, and he's going to give out gifts of healing and prophecy and tongues and all that sort of stuff. Paul knows fully well in the book of Romans, he wrote it in chapter 12, verse 6, and in Corinthians 12, that it's only the Spirit of God that sovereignly distributes the Spirit's gifts. I think Paul's speaking more generically here. He's kind of saying, I want to come to you, and I want to use my gifts of pastoring and preaching to just give grace to you, to see you strengthened, to see you built up. You know, that word to strengthen 
means to establish. So think in your mind of a tree that over the years has been cared for. Its roots are deep. And when the, when the winds come, it, it maintains its footing. Its strength is in the ground. When it doesn't rain and there's seasons of drought, it still produces a leaf because the roots are so... That's what Paul wants to do. He wants to make us like oak trees to come and strengthen us, to deepen our faith in the gospel, to deepen our love for God. You, know, you can know the longing of Paul from his other letters, right? In Galatians chapter 4, he says to a church that's beginning to waver in faith in the gospel, he says, he says, I, I, he says I'm again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. Now, ladies, you have more of an angle on understanding that than we do, but, but just the idea of him referencing that as a metaphor to explain how much he wants them to be established in the faith. Or he says in Colossians, he says, Him we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that you might be presented mature and complete in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that is at work within me. So you can hear the language of toil and struggle until Christ be... So that's what Paul wants. He loves the church, and he wants to come and to see them established. But Paul's not so high and mighty that he doesn't think he needs their help. Notice what he says there. He says in verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Again, the redundancy is for emphasis. He's looking for them to pour into him. He's looking for them to encourage him in the faith. I mean, this is the great apostle. He's taken two missionary journeys. God's used him for the... He's the apostle that God chose out of all to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's coming to this church he doesn't even know. And he says, I want you to build me up. What humility. He knows that he needs other people. He is not an island unto himself. He hasn't attained the ivory tower of spirituality where he doesn't need help anymore. And I think that's why he reveals his heart when he says, you know, I've been prevented from coming to you. But I want to come and reap a harvest, he says. That word for harvest is fruit. He wants to see fruit be born out of this relationship. So that's how he's loving the church. This is how we can love the church, by mutually encouraging one another. So when you think about that, you know, if your love is measured by the degree to which you engage one another for purposes of the spiritual good of another, how much do you love? What would be revealed? You know, when I talk about mutually encouraging one another, I, I'm talking about, about being concerned about the spiritual well-being of your neighbor, that you're going to engage them after the service. You're going to engage them through the week. You can't engage everybody, but a few souls that you are, you are concerned, you're asking questions, you're intentional, you're moving toward them for their spiritual development. You're praying for them. You're asking them questions. You're opening your life up to them. You know, many times people can feel disconnected um, in a church. They feel kind of um, alienated, separated. They don't feel like they have a friend. Now, I can understand that. I don't know that, that our definition, or at least our modern definition of friendship, is always what the scriptures are scratching after. 
uh, the scriptures seem to be more concerned about this idea of that I am willing to pour my life to you so that you will grow in your faith and love for God. That, that I'm willing to submit my desire for happiness or to be heard because uh, I want you to be more prepared to see God. And so the direction and the intentionality of my questions and my observations and my engagement of you are going to be for your good and for the development of your soul. A woman who is a friend wrote this about her perceptions of disconnectedness. And she said this, she goes, I think there's a struggle because people are me-oriented. We're keenly aware always when it appears we're left out rather than looking for others who also appear left out. There needs to be a reorienting of the heart, his kingdom over mine, making community about him and not me, asking not, does everybody like me, but, but how has God gifted this person, and how can I encourage them on to good deeds? How can I sacrifice myself for the betterment of my brother or sister? I don't think we ask these questions. I think that's really true. I mean, the way we love one another is that, is that I have a redemptive edge in the conversation with you, that, that I want to draw it to a place of your growth in Christ. And, and this, this is, you know, the threats to this kind of life, the threats to this mutual encouragement that we need to pour into each other are numerous. Number one can just be distance. You know, that you keep up a distance from people. I'm speaking emotional distance. You, know, you can be in a care group, you can pray with your guys, you can read a book, you can do whatever. But if you maintain this kind of um, lack of transparency or distance emotionally, then you're only teasing yourself with true mutual encouragement. Or, or not just distance, but absence. You know, if you're here every other week, or if you're kind of inconsistently, you know, the only thing consistent is inconsistency, and you're not in proximity to people. And, and, and without proximity, it's hard to have that mutual encouragement. You know, the old saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, spiritually speaking, I would say absence makes the heart go wander. I mean, you don't care as much because you're not in close proximity to them. Uh, but there, there's another threat to this kind of mutual encouragement, the way we can love each other, is that you write yourself off and you say, you know what, we're at a church and people are so spiritually smart here, I, I don't have anything to add to them. I, I couldn't encourage them. They know the Bible so well. They know where scriptures are, are referenced. And they've been in the faith a long time and I, I really I wouldn't want to say anything. May I challenge that? I mean, it's out of the mouth of babes that truth comes. John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, said this. He said, there is no one so void of gifts in the church of Christ, who is not able to contribute something to our spiritual benefit. I, I think we see this, you know, we've had a number of people come to faith in Christ, and they are so excited about God. I mean, I find there to be great encouragement from those new in the faith. I, I love their zeal, their excitement, their learning of the scriptures. They're trying to piece theology to their life. I find that to be extremely encouraging, and I know that many of you do as well. I mean, there's nothing better than being with a new Christian. Are they bringing all this biblical knowledge to the table? No, but they have a zeal for the Savior that our knowledge has sometimes displaced. 
So let me encourage the, those of you who feel like you cannot mutually encourage one another, that would not be from the scriptures. I mean, that may be in your head, but I would encourage you to listen to God and not listen to yourself on this one, that you can be a mutual encouragement to us by the way you love God, the way you're fighting sin, the way you're longing for his appearing, the way you're learning about him. It's great encouragement. And then to those of us, the last threat I would say would also be just the pride that some of us may have after being years in the faith. You know, some of us feel so sufficient, or this is a threat that we can feel so sufficient we don't need the encouragement of one another. This is, this is the heartbreak for me when people kind of detach themselves from the community of faith because they're kind of saying, although they may not say it out loud, but they don't need the encouragement of others. They're not in a community. Because being in a community requires effort. And, but what it does is it reveals, no, I really do need help to finish this life well. You won't finish well apart from community. And I think that's the, kind of the last threat to this way we can love one another with mutual encouragement is it is messy. There's no doubt. I, I think sometimes in our minds we think, Ministry is going to be this kind of, it's analogous to a surgeon who goes into an operation. He's gowned up, he's got gloves, he's got the gown, he's got the hat, he's got the mask, he's ready to roll. He gets in there, he, he fixes the problem, and he comes out, he takes it all off, throws it in the trash can, washes his hand, and goes out to a nice dinner. That works in the operating room, perhaps, but not in ministry. It's very messy. And I think that sometimes is a threat. And it inhibits us from wanting to love one another by mutually encouraging each other. So, so challenge these things. Consider these things. The way we love the church is by praying for one another, giving thanks to God for the grace that we see. Even they may be advancing us as it feels. And we love the church through mutual encouragement one another. Who can you give a word of encouragement to this week? Now, it requires you to stop, look around, see what God's doing in someone's life, and then give word to it and say, thank you, I've seen the grace of God in your life in this way. You will encourage them. Or asking them for prayer. You just initiating, you're going up and saying, I'm really struggling in this area of my life. I have found failure upon failure. Would you pray for me over this issue? That's what it takes to get that mutual encouragement going. Okay, the last way that Paul seems to want to love this church is through preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. You see this in 14 and 15. He speaks about how he feels obligated to come to the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Now, what's Paul saying here? Well, Paul, uh, I think he's saying simply that he feels obligated to take the gospel uh, to the Gentile world. And that's what he means by Greeks and barbarians. Barbarians was just simply an expression for those that couldn't speak Greek or didn't live in Greek culture. So he's really, you got the Jews over here, you got the Gentiles over here, and Paul's saying, I feel commissioned, and we see this both in Acts chapter 9 when he was converted, but we also, he writes about it in Romans chapter 11, as well as Romans chapter 15, he said, God's called me to go to the Gentiles. So Paul's saying to us, I feel obligated to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. And, and when you see that word obligated, uh, some of your translations may have debt. He feels, he feels a debt to go. Now what does this mean? Well, I don't think 
Paul feels. Like we think of debt as like we take something from somebody and we owe something back. Well, Paul knows he's been saved by the grace of God. So there's no debt there. He cannot pay God back. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a gift of salvation. It would be something he's earning. So what does he mean that he feels a debt? Well, I think what he's saying is he feels a debt to the Gentiles to tell them about the unfathomable mercy that he has received from God. So if he's been this recipient of grace and he's been reconciled to God, how could he not want to share that with other people? So I think that's what he means by uh, I'm obligated to the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish, that he wants to take the gospel outward. He wants to take, he understands this is the only good news that the world has to bring them in reconciliation with God. This is the only news. It, it would be like you somehow discovering a serum for the flu that is kind of sweeping across the country, but you don't share it with anybody. You just keep it close. Or, or you find a way out from some problem and, and, and you just take off and you, you take the means of escape, but you don't tell anybody with you. you know, there's a certain indebtedness that we ought to feel. that you, If you're a Christian and your eyes have been opened to the glory of God through the gospel, that's not a bad debt to bear. It's a debt of love. A debt of love to share. Now, to share with people. Uh, but he doesn't just feel a debt to the Gentile world. Notice, he's eager to preach the gospel. It's not a burden to him, it's a blessing. He says, I'm eager to come preach the gospel to you in Rome. It, it's a debt that is really a delight. He's eager to preach the gospel. Now, you see why he's eager in 16 and 17. This is why we read the Bible expositionally, right? Because people will see 16 and 17 for, uh, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, uh, for in it of righteousness from God's been revealed. We can take that out and just say, hey, this is the summation of the book, which it is. But notice when we hold it in tension with verse 15, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. And then, you notice in 16 and 17, there are three subordinate clauses, all beginning with the word for. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God. For in it. He's giving reasons why he's eager. He's telling us why he wants to come preach the gospel. And, and it should be the same reasons that we want to preach the gospel. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul knows the gospel is offensive. I mean, when you preach the gospel to people, uh, you're telling them they are spiritual failures. You're telling them that they are unable in their own power to be reconciled to God. They can try forever, you won't do it. You're telling them that they failed so bad they have to have it gifted to them because they can never somehow earn it. That offends religious people. That offends moral people. But Paul said, I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I'm not ashamed. That's why I'm eager to preach it. Even though it might be offensive, I'm still eager. Why? The second reason, because it's the power of God. The gospel is not bringing a power. It's not a vehicle of power. It is power. It changes our lives. It changes our lives. It, it, it changes the way we look at life. It reconciles us to God. It promises us eternal life, forgiveness, adoption, redemption. The gospel actually saves. 
It doesn't offer and hang out there like a, a carrot on a stick, a potential salvation. But he says, no, I will save you. Those given to me, not one will be lost. It does save. It does reconcile us to God. That's why he's eager to preach it. He's not giving kind of a theory that might work, but he's saying something that has power to change and to save. The third reason he gives, you see it in 17. 17 is how he's going to do this. He says, for in it, in the gospel that is, there is a righteousness of God revealed. In other words, what Paul's saying is, I'm eager to preach it because I have, I have the good news that shows us how we can be right with God. When you see that, a righteousness of God is revealed. What he's saying is, he's saying that there is a status that we can have, being right before God through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, who came to live among us perfectly, who took upon himself as our substitute our sins and suffered the wrath of God, that he now can give to us his righteousness so that when God sees us, he sees Christ. And Paul's saying, I'm eager to teach this. I'm eager to remind you that your righteousness, your good standing, your forgiveness, your acceptance, your adoption with God, it's all because of Christ. And it's yours through faith. He says in there, from faith, for faith. In other words, it's entirely of faith. And notice that it begins for you a new way of living. Because he says, and the just will live by faith. In other words, it's a new way where we're now living by faith. No longer do we work by, no longer do we live by some form of meritocracy. No, no longer do we live by some adherence, outward adherence to the law. We live by faith. We live day by day trusting that Christ is sufficient for us in this life. So that's why he's here to preach it. But there's one more reason that is not in our passage. Just go with me to verse 18. Because you see, one yet, yet one more for. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and wickedness. So Paul's eager to preach because he knows that the world stains under the wrath of God. That God's wrath, God's judgment on sin is a reality that all men and women will ultimately face apart from faith in Christ. That's why he's eager to teach it. That's why he's eager to preach it. So you, you see Paul loving the church because he wants to come to these Romans and remind them of the greatness of this gospel. He's eager to come and to remind you, people, don't live your life according to the mores and the customs in which we live in this culture. You are justified. Live by faith in Christ. Live life as if you're going to live forever. Treat your money, treat your spouse, treat your home, treat your time like God is overseeing all things. That's how we now live. It's altogether different from the world. So how do we love our church? We love our church by wanting to preach the gospel to one another. So if your love is measured by the engagement you have of others over the nature of the gospel, what would it say about your love? When I say preaching the gospel, I know it sounds strange to you because many of you think of the gospel, perhaps you do, as that good news leading us from darkness to the kingdom of light. And we see the gospel as saving us from, from damnation and death and bringing us into eternal life. And that would be true, but that wouldn't be all. Paul says he wants to preach the gospel. And it seems strange because you'd say to me, hey, Tom, in verse 8, they were already being commended for their faith. Why would he want to come and teach them about the gospel again? And that would, that would reveal to us that we don't understand the gospel doesn't just 
justify us. It doesn't just save us, declare us innocent, put us in right position with God, but actually sanctifies us. The gospel, day by day, changes us. The gospel is given to us to help us reconcile conflict. The gospel helps prepare us to fight sin. Knowing the gospel helps me to prepare my soul to see God. The gospel motivates us to mission. The gospel motivates us to sacrifice. How so? Well, when you get a hold of all that God has done for you in Christ, your heart has to swell with affection. And those affections for God lead you to a right-filled obedience. I mean, isn't this what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14? He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live, that's us, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We stop living for ourselves, which is the marker of the man apart from God, and we live for him. His love controls us, it compels us, it motivates us, it fuels us. Thinking and learning about the gospel moves me to want to extend forgiveness, even though my feelings have been hurt. The love of, of Christ for me fuels me to want to go and risk a relationship to say something that needs to be said. The love of Christ controls us. It moves us to want to be sacrificial with the things that we have because they are a brother or sister in need, and I, I need to meet them. The love of Christ controls us and compels us to sacrifice ourselves in a myriad of ways. This is a way we can love one another. But not just, not just with one another. Preaching the gospel to those who are not yet in the church is a way we love the church. Do you feel a debt of, do you feel a debt of love to others if you know the gospel? Do, do, do you feel a, a debt of wanting to share this good news? I'm not saying going out knocking on doors, although I'll tell you, I've met enough people that have come to faith through that. But even if you just start with your circle of relationships that you have, can you speak about the gospel to those in your family? Can you ask them to, to, that you can share the hope that you have of Christ? That there would be this impulse in your soul, not in an obnoxious way, not in a Bible-thumping way, just this is the hope that I have for life now and forever. And you are so dear and near to me that I have a debt of love to share this with you. I mean, that, that's what I'm talking about. It, it's just this, this is the way we can love the church of those who will yet, that God's going to call into the church, but through your witness. I shared this about 10 years ago, but um, many of you probably haven't heard it, and hopefully those of you old enough like I am, maybe you forget it, so it'll be new to you and fresh, like a lot of things are now. Um, the, uh, so preparing to go overseas, we did mission work in Chicago for about six months. And part of the mission training, uh, we went to the University of Chicago on their campus and we would just witness. We'd try to engage people in conversations and share with them about the gospel. And I remember um, it, was, it was a nervous time. You know, I didn't feel comfortable doing it. So I went for the, the smallest and the uh, most alone person I could find on the whole campus and he turned out to be a student there, and uh, he was Asian from, I think, China. So I was talking to him about the nature of the gospel, and uh, he was very, very uh, serious, pensive, listening very, very intently. 
And as I stumbled through it, and that's what I did do, I stumbled through some presentation, and, uh, and he looked at me with these just not bewildering eyes, because I think he understood, but he looked at me and said, why is it that this is the first time I've ever heard such great news? And I thought, because well, we haven't been faithful to share it. And uh, I think that's Paul's heart. He longs to come and preach the gospel. So he loves this church. I love this church. I know many of you love this church. The way we love it is through active engagement of praying, giving thanks to people. Go through the membership directory. God, thank you for this person. And, and pray for them. That's a way of loving. A way of loving is to mutually encourage one another, to, to intentionally engage in conversations without regard for your good, but for their good. I know that your good is also important. And I trust that God in his perfect economy, as you serve them, I, I promise you the Spirit of God will fill you with joy and enable you to endure well. And then another way to love is to be looking for opportunities to share the gospel, to remind people of all that God has done. I mean, you know, to just get our minds filled up with how kind God has been to us, that he would give one to reconcile us to himself, that we would, that we would encourage one another with this gospel. That's why when Jeremy leads us, you notice when he's singing, he'll keep just putting lines in there, reminding us of these truths as we sing the song just hoping to stimulate within us a greater love for God. And this is how we can love the church. So Paul has set for us a model, and uh, I've just tried to explain it to you. So, so let's ask God. Maybe let's take a, just a few moments now and silently confess before God that which maybe is convicting to you, or perhaps ask God for grace in that area that maybe you need to grow, or maybe just thank God for those that have come to your mind as I've I've preached, and then I'll close this in just a minute.